jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. This is Inside Barry Reynolds, part two, featuring legendary songwriter and guitar player Barry Reynolds. Known for his iconic work with Marianne Faithful and Grace Jones, Barry is also one of the original Compass Point All-Stars, the group of international musicians that created some of rock and roll and reggae's most groundbreaking albums and sessions at Chris Blackwell's studio in the Bahamas in the 70s and 80s. Throughout this series of in-depth interviews with New York-based DJ, musicologist, and journalist Greg Kaz, Barry reveals his fascinating story from Lancashire to London and Nassau to New York City. A great rock on tour and gentleman, Barry tells inside stories of his early years as a teenage guitar prodigy around the early Beatles scene in Hamburg, becoming a top recording and touring musician for everyone from Clapton to Black Uhuru and Joe Cocker, and his most recent collaborations with Baba Mal and New York performance artist and musician Tammy Faye Starlight. And now, part two of Inside Barry Reynolds. So now we're, we're getting sort of into a very, very legendary and fascinating period that's always held a fascination for me, which is the whole Compass Point era, mm. which is an era that I really, the, the whole sort of like, you know, Grace Jones, centered around Grace Jones, Chris Blackwell, and then, you know, Compass Point Studios in Nassau, in the Bahamas. Mm. And then you had Sly and Robbie and you had Wally Bataru and you had Mikey Chung and you had all, and you had yourself and you had all these brilliant people, the great producer and engineer, uh, Alex Sadkin. Absolutely. Um, So all these amazing creative people just sort of like converging on this studio in the Caribbean. Yeah. And um, making this music that's just so cutting edge 40 years ago and still cutting edge now there is something about the creative energy that came out of that whole scene that i find just endlessly fascinating like you know i still listen to these records and they still they're they're just mind-blowing you know and and it's connected also to the whole downtown new york circa 1980, 81, you know, sort of thing where you had your people like your artists and your fashion people and all these different creators. Jean-Paul Goud. Jean-Paul Goud. You had photography. You had film. You had fashion. You had street art. You had Keith Haring. You had Basquiat. You had hip-hop starting. And so this whole downtown New York creative nexus Chris Blackwell and Grace Jones managed to stuff that all on a plane and fly it down to the Bahamas and get it all on tape on these brilliant, just kind of mold breaking, game changing records. And I would really love to like get your sort of overview of that whole era and how you came to be a part of it in such a central part of it. Well, what, what, what happened was uh, it was my birthday. I was living in London. I was I was really drunk. I was I was high, and I got a call from Blackwell, and 
thank God I wrote something down or else I would have forgotten. Uh, you know, it was like, oh, what's happening, man? He said, uh, he said, yeah, I want you to come down to uh, Compass Point uh, Studios and do something with Grace Jones. And I thought he said Gloria Jones. And Gloria Jones used to go out with Mark Boland. Mark Boland, and you don't want to get into a car with her. Yeah, that's right. And so I said, yeah, man, whatever, you know, and hung the phone up and then went back to the party or whatever I was doing. And the day after, I, I saw this scribbling and I thought, you have to get in touch with Island Records here. And so I got in touch with Island Records and uh, I said, I, I apologize uh, <laughs> if I said anything, you know, out of whatever, you know, I, I don't know what the fuck was going on last night. But uh, yes, I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I said, but why uh, Gloria Jones and, uh, you know, why? And I'd, I'd heard of Sly and Robbie through who is it the uh the duet that did uh give me a little tell me when i'm me way uptown uptown top ranking by althea and donna yeah and and uh, that groove you know i just and saw they were also in black uhuru at the time yeah and uh I, I i played on a couple of black uhuru uh albums Mm -hmm. um, but then I, I got got in touch with Chris and said, yeah, he, he said, no, it's Grace Jones. He said, and if you can go out and, and get her albums, you know, and uh, listen to her last albums, because I'd never heard of Grace Jones. Right. And so anyway, I, I found the albums and came back. And, and like those, those early kind of more disco-ish. Yeah, I, you know, there's a mistake here. Why, why do you need to get in? Where do I fit into this? Yeah, uh, because one, I, I thought they were awful records. You know, I thought, you know, the grooves were, were dreadful. They were kind of thrown together. And, you know, it, it was just like, I, I know don't know. What was missing was you to put it all right. <laughs> well, uh, well um, uh, Chris is very... Uh, uh, forceful and uh he, he said J just come over and you know and so i remember getting on the plane and, and wally was on the plane as well i met wally and wally could wally batteru yes. the uh, keyboard player and uh, wally could barely speak english and uh it was the first time in my life i have to say this you know it's true i arrived in uh, with, with wally at uh, compass point there was no one there to greet us. And it was like, where are we staying? And eventually someone turned up and said, you're staying in uh, this place. And it's like, well, where, what, what about the studio? And someone showed us the studio and said, like, where's the other musicians? And he's like, oh, they're in Jamaica. And it's like, why? So, well, you know, they'll, they'll be coming over in three days. And I thought, well, why did you bring this over now? You know, and... Uh, and so it started off a little, little, little yeah, weird. And then uh, Sly it's and Robbie. About 1980 or so, right? Yeah. And um, there was a little racism there, I must admit. I was going to say reverse racism. There's no such thing. You know, I mean, racism is it's racism. Like it, yeah. when, when I arrived there, first of all, they looked at Wally because Wally is like African, yeah. uh, Parisian. And so... And, and kind of regal in many ways, you know. And so the Jamaicans kind of looked down upon, he's looking down upon this man, 
you know, he, you know, he thinks he's superior. And he wasn't. He just didn't understand what was going on. Grace actually said something about this because I read her, her book, which is brilliant. Mm. And she, she mentioned how there were certain cultural tensions at first, at least, you know, at the beginning of these sessions where like Wally and the Jamaicans had took a minute to kind of like suss each other out and get used to each other before they. Yeah, well, out. Wally actually, um, after a couple of a uh, couple of days, just thought, I I, I want to go home. I, I I can't relate to these people, and I I think you know they they don't like me and uh, whatever, and so uh, I think it was Alex who said, well, listen, what we'll do is put down the grooves and. Uh, you can work later, and uh, Wally's good at working by himself. Right. Leave him alone, you right. know, and let him, you know, put the uh, fairy dust on. Fairy dust on it, yeah. Uh, put uh, put on it. But what broke me through with uh, with the Jamaicans? I, I I always now I'm 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 Mikey is in New York. I'm, I'm in touch with Mikey. I love him dearly. He's one of my best friends. And um, he's, he's in New York these days. Yeah. And so um, anyway, uh, my Mikey and I have always, I, I'd, I'd bring Mike into uh, sessions that I was doing as well, you know, get him over to Europe and stuff, because I think he's a great bass player as well as a guitarist. He plays yeah, like Robbie, you know, I, I, and the way he does the bubble thing on, you know, the keyboards and uh, stuff like that. But I remember this one time in uh, the studio, uh, I don't know, in, in England, we had these cigarettes called Embassy. And this was when I was smoking cigarettes. And so uh, we, we would sit, which was a great idea we would sit in a circle so there was eye contact you know and so you know we'd nod at each other whatever but i remember i had this this chair you know and i had a music stand i, I don't read but i'd have the stand there just you know with notes and everything and i put my cigarettes on there and so uh, the first day, you know, I put my embassy cigarettes, which I bought on the plane. And, uh, you know, I, I'd go to the bathroom and come back and they weren't there. And it was like, hmm, that's odd. Day after, same thing. Day after, the same thing. And so I'm thinking, what the fuck is going on here? So I look over and Sticky, who I dearly love amazing musician amazing percussionist and uh, i looked over and he had this setup and i see these embassy cigarettes now you couldn't buy embassy in nassau and you yeah. couldn't buy embassy in jamaica and so i went over and uh said listen man i said if you know uh, because they weren't talking to me at that point you know i don't know why but um and i went over and i said listen if you want a cigarette I said, just, just ask for one, man. So you don't have to take the packet. And so Sticky, who, I mean, Sticky is like trench town Sticky. I mean, hard as nails. He's right. got about 400 kids, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> Sticky turned around to me and said, you're calling me a thief. I said, I'm not calling you anything. I'm just saying, you know, you've just stolen my, uh, you, you, you've, 
those are my cigarettes. Where else would you get them? And so Sticky said, you, me, outside, come on. And so I'm thinking, oh, fuck. here we go. And so he's walking, you know, to the doorway of, uh, you know, leading out to the studio. And I'm following him and I'm thinking, you're going to get in a brawl and you're probably going to get plastered by this guy. Uh, what's going on? But anyway, I, 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 I followed him. And as, as soon as we got to the door, Sticky turned around and went, me only, me only kidding, man, me only joking, and give me, gave me a hug. And I was like, thank God for that. You know? <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I'd kind of... Uh, the ice was broken a bit. Yeah, and I, I, I gained a certain amount of macho respect. I know it sounds weird, but after that, you know, my name became Jarby. I noticed on, on a couple of these records, you know, you're credited as Barry White Reynolds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, and it was like, I'm like, that's not even funny. You know, I mean, if you're going to, you know, whatever. But, but they, they, they were great with, uh, you know, they, they'd, uh, they'd call musicians such a buddy horse mouth. <laughs> whatever ailment you had, they, they would, uh, you know, whatever. But after, after that, we started, when we started recording, we were recording three tracks a day in uh, wow. six hours. So out of that came, like, in rapid succession, the Warm Leatherette and nightclubbing albums. Yeah. And uh, Grace would come down later. Grace would come, and I, some, I, w I would call up Grace, and it, it, it annoyed me. I told Grace about this because... She did some interview in the New York Times and uh, she was saying, and yes, you know, we'd work out the songs. And I'm like, no, we didn't. You weren't there. <laughs> you know? And um, because I, I, I remember calling Grace and Grace is waking up and I'm going, listen, I need to know the key that you're singing this song in. And so, you know, I get the guitar and go, how's this key? And she's singing in a certain key. And I go, Okay, well, she's singing in G, let's do it in A or whatever, you know, because, you know, you, once you're in front of the mic, a little more energy, you know, and uh, whatever. And it, and it worked that way. Oh, that's great. That's brilliant. And yeah. so um, now now's the time that, like, I got to ask about this song, which is one of my favorites, and it's one of yours, and it's called Bullshit. It's actually not one of my favorites. I love that tune. <laughs> it, was, it, it, it was, it uh, was, to be honest with you, it, it was like we got through the tracks so quickly that Blackwell was like surprised. And uh, it was like, we need material. Do you have anything? And so one night, I think I got drunk uh, and, uh, you know, rum and, you know, a few. Uh, Jeffrey's of smoke, whatever, and, uh, and 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 wrote this, and we went in and and recorded it.
you know, the lyrics to that are so kind of like, there's times when I myself just kind of need to hear that song because it expresses exactly how I'm feeling, <laughs> you know? And I think a lot of us can relate to it. Is there a certain- Oh, that, 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 that's really good to hear because I've never heard that before. Uh, no one's actually brought up the song I'm before. I'm tired of this bullshit. <laughs> You know, it's, it's great, you know, and it's and the title is right there on the record. And it's just like, oh, wow, this is great. There's a song on here called Bullshit. And, you know, and and when, when I, I play it sometimes at parties and people just kind of look over and they smile and they give the thumbs up like, yeah, I know exactly what this song is. Oh, that, that, that's, that's really good to know that you get a little <laughs> more confidence. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah no, it, it's, a, it's a nice one. And I figured it was probably something written. I mean, it shows signs of being something that maybe this was written at the last minute, or maybe it's just something that was, came from somewhere deep inside. Either right, way, exactly. the end result is great. Yeah. And it fits her persona so perfectly well. Yeah, that, that's interesting to know. But uh, Grace is, is probably one of the laziest people I've ever met in my life. And uh, and so I would start with an idea. And uh, uh, sometimes Grace would start with an idea. I remember at one point she was splitting up with uh, uh, Jean-Paul and during one of their arguments, he turned around because Grace was hanging out with Andy Warhol and, you know, the, um, you know, the artsy New York. Uh, Art groupie. Yeah, art groupie, exactly. And uh, she wrote something to Jean-Paul saying, the only, the, the only way you see me is as an art groupie. And as soon as she said that, I said, you know, we should, we should do something with that. Because when I listen to that song now, and I don't like these writers at all, but it kind of reminds me of uh, like the ding, 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 ding. It reminds me of uh, uh, almost like a something that Andrew Lloyd Webber would write. Yeah. You know uh, <laughs> that, that melody. I rather write my memoir. There's nothing in my book, and uh, but. You know, she called the book Art Groupie, apparently. And so, wow. uh, but I, I, after it was always easy for me to write with Grace, you know, because she was really open. And um, I, I, I love her dearly, you know. And when I'm in Jamaica, we always we always get together, you know. And uh, was doing that Piazzolla tango cover her idea? No, it was uh, Jean Paul Goods. Oh, wow. And it was a that that was one of my beefs with Grace because what happened was I wrote the lyrics to uh, uh, to a Libertango, you know, and basically it was about a stalker, you know, in, in some club in Paris, and um, we're listening to it, listening back, 
and Natalie Delon, who's Parisian, I said, you know what, it would be great because we didn't have the uh, accordion solo in yet. Uh, I said, it would be great if you could talk, if you could say something here in French. And so her and Natalie got together and just said something in French. I said, Men mention a street, you know, and so she mentioned Hoffman Boulevard, you know. And then when the album came out, I see like five writers and uh, that really annoyed me. You know, because I thought you just threw this. I, I I did the work there. Interesting. I so I, I hope I'm not sounding too self-aggrandizing here, but no, it's, the it's, truth. it's actually a very common occurrence. You know, in terms of like who gets a piece of the song for doing what. You know. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a it's one of the longest running things in the music business. And 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 over less than that. And it never stopped. It never stopped, yeah. It never stopped, yeah. But uh, I, I also love Libertango because I love the uh, uh, accordion solo in oh, that. There's a great atmosphere to Libertango. Yeah. Definitely. And uh, the groove that it's like a tango. It, 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 it has that tango feel, yeah. For, for, for anyone familiar with the music of Piazzolla, hearing how you guys managed to just like reshape it and adapt it to that context just makes it that much more brilliant. But uh, uh, Jean Paul was the one that, 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 that brought that in, and uh, I think everyone at first was like, What? What? And then I thought, yeah, give me a, you know, give me a couple of days. Let me see what I can do with the lyric, you know, uh, writing a lyric to that melody. And uh, and so I, I think it worked. I thought Grace sang it really well. funny I was living in London at the time and everywhere I went in in Europe I was touring and everywhere I went I'd, I'd go into a restaurant and it would be, play, it'd be playing so you know we did our job I can imagine that playing in every restaurant in Europe for sure yeah <laughs> yeah I didn't get paid from every restaurant but, but well. 
So, so, um, so, so, so again, you have these these records that you guys just made under these interesting circumstances. Oh, I always wondered. It was probably not in the same month, but um, Warm Leatherette was recorded at Compass Point in 1980, around the time that ACDC was there to do Back in Black. I always wondered if you guys ever like bumped into each other there or something. Uh, I, I, I did, yeah. Interesting. And, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, they were really nice. But the most interesting person that I met down there, and the Stones came down, you know, and all this and whatever. And uh, but I remember one time going into the studio and I said, and I heard this music and I hear this get back, boogaloo, get back where you're going to. And I thought, what the fuck's that? Ringo. <laughs> she was Ringo and Harry Nielsen, right? Oh my goodness. And so I I just look in and it's like one o'clock in the afternoon, right? And I I I, I just look in. And I see uh, Harry Nielsen had put on a lot of weight because he was drinking right. a lot, you know. And, and yeah, the, had, the, the last weekend never stopped for those two. Yeah, and and and, and he had uh, well, well, Ringo is completely clean now, you know. He doesn't yeah, now, yeah. yeah. But uh, there was there was a bottle of Jack Daniels, uh, uh, you know, which is half full, and so it <laughs> already started. And um, I went in and. I really liked Harry Nielsen immediately. I loved his his sense of humor. And then Grace came in. And at this point, Grace was really into, uh, she was into boxing, you know, and uh, and health, you know, the whole health thing. And uh, she came in and Harry Nielsen sat there and she went, what are you doing? You know, you're drinking, uh, you know, uh, uh, liquor at one o'clock in the afternoon. She said, you, you're going to kill yourself. She said, don't you get any exercise? And Harry Nielsen, <laughs> I remember him saying, of course I get exercise. I get up and I sit down. <laughs> and I thought, he's my hero. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> but then what happened was... Uh, I got a call from my girlfriend in uh, in London. She said Lennon's just been shot. Oh man! And uh, that night, around three o'clock, I heard this helicopter, and it was picking up Ringo and Harry Nielsen and taking them to uh, Miami to get a plane to go up to New York. Oh my goodness! And uh, and I remember it, it was like a whole day that we I, I didn't know if he was dead. Or he'd just been he'd be he'd been shot, you know, and 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 when we found out, it's just like what the fuck. You know? Hard to get any work done when you hear some news like that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So 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 Ringo and Harry were actually on the island, and that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because that was like you know an interesting period. Like I thought, 1980, Nassau, Bahamas. So I made the ACDC connection. I didn't realize that uh, Ringo and Nielsen were there as well. Well, they weren't there at the same time as ACDC. Yeah, the ACDC was a few months earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, a mainstay there also was uh, Robert Palmer. Robert Palmer you was know, there a and, lot. Um, he lived opposite the um, Compass Point Studios. And uh, him and his wife and his child... Uh, uh, James, Jim, who I 
who I played with since uh, Robert passed away. I played on uh, a Baba Mal album and toured with uh, Baba Mal with, uh, with Jim Palmer, who's a, a great uh, percussionist and uh, a really good writer. And uh, Robert, um, you know, I, I don't think he used Sly and Robbie uh, or, or the, uh, uh, the All-Stars, and so this, the sound was, was predominantly Robert's sound. You know, he brought in his own musicians. I think he used Wally uh, on uh, a couple of things. And, um, but he was very inventive. He was, uh, you know, he was always trying for new things. And, uh, and he was, uh, he was, just, he, he was a sweet man. You know, he was very intense. I, I, I would see Robert in the studio um, a lot, and uh, sometimes we would uh, get together round at his place and and just play. And uh, we did a couple of sessions. We did one session, which uh, I, I'd, I'd love to find the uh, tape. It was uh, it, it was with um, with Lee Scratchberry, who was a genius, you know, and. Uh, and we did uh, things like "Hold on, I'm Coming," you know, Sam and Dave song, and and uh, we we had a great jam. We were jamming for about six hours, and I don't know where where those tapes have gone, but they really should be uh, released, you know, because it, it, it was a joy. I, I also sang with him on um, the uh, Joe Cocker album, uh, Sheffield Steel, and I remember Joe coming down. And there's a couple of tracks, there's a couple of grooves on that album that I just think th those are magical, you know, and there's a, a Bill with, with the song that we do. And uh, uh, Robbie's bass line is like from heaven. Wow. You know, and uh, the groove is almost like a staple singers, you know, I'll take you there. I think one song that I, I I don't get embarrassed to listen to is um, a Randy Newman song, funnily enough, called Marie. And it, it was just Sly, uh, Robbie, and uh, Wally on the piano, and me on guitar. And we did it in one take. And uh, I thought we, we captured the mood of uh, the song and I thought Joe sang it beautifully. <laughs> wow. So uh, that's what happened with that. Drunk now, baby, 
So you knock out all these records and these first two Grace albums. And then uh, does Chris Blackwell say, hey, Barry, do you want to make a solo album? No. Well, what happened was Chris was going out with this lady called Natalie Delon, mm -hmm. who was uh, the uh, wife of uh, Alan, Alain Delon. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, th I think Robbie had been arrested, right? <laughs> And uh, because he was doing some session in uh, New York and he sent his roadie back with his uh, bass, his so-called bass. He said, listen, man, can you take this back? You know, because I got my other bass here. I don't, me, me don't need it. You take it back. And so this guy said, okay. Now they all knew Robbie in Jamaica. And so when he'd walk in, it was like, yeah, Robbie, how are you doing? But they didn't know this guy. And so they stopped him. They said, can you open uh, the uh, guitar case? And so he opened the guitar case and there was an Uzi in it. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Yeah. And so the guy was immediately arrested. And so then the next thing, they were waiting for Robbie to come back. And Robbie was immediately arrested. And he was, but he was putting gun court, you know, which is. Yes. Yeah, the gun court. Yeah, and uh, and I think with Chris's connections and, you know, money can buy you everything. As uh, Randy Newman says, money can buy you, uh, money can buy you all the coke, coke no, 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 you need. No, no, I don't know. They, they, they say money can't buy you love in this world. It'll give you a half pound of cocaine and a 16-year-old girl and, and a hot September night. Now, yeah. that might not be love. But it's all right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Beautiful line. And also incredibly true. Yes. And, and, and so I, th I, I think Chris did some moving and shaking. But I remember going, asking Robbie, I said, Robbie, I said, you know, you were, you were in there. I think he was in there for about maybe two, three months or something like that. I said, what, what was it like? He said, there was about 100 people in one room. I was going, wow. I said, how, how did you exist? He said, there was one bed. Oh my God. I said, and? He said, that was mine. <laughs> and so, okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> you know, he had a, bless him, but he, he, he's, he's the real thing. He's a real gangster, you know, I yeah. mean, uh, but also a wonderful musician and a wonderful person. I, I love him. And so, like, so what's the genesis? Oh, uh, 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 so, so uh, sorry, I, I, I got off track there. And so we were, we were there, all the musicians were there, and it was Natalie who turned around and said, uh, uh, Barry, why don't you make an album? And I, it, 
I, I think my response was because I, I don't really want to. I, I don't know. And uh, Chris was like, well, there's, you know, you've got some studio time here. And so we spent about three days, you know, just going in and doing these tracks. And Alex was there. And Alex helped me out, you know, with uh, the vocals and stuff. And uh, I just kind of dragged these tracks together. My favorite track on the album is me, again, being drunk. I don't drink, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but um, I did... Uh, an IRA song, and it's just me playing acoustic guitar and singing called The Bolfinian Man. Yeah, The Bolfinian Man. And uh, I remember being kind of nervous because I looked up and I see Chris and Tina from Talking Heads, and they're all in the studio and they're all looking at me. And I'm, I, I'm getting, I'm even more nervous now. And so I went up to my room, which was behind the uh, studio. I had a huge slug of uh, rum, and I had a you know a couple of puffs or whatever, and then came back and did the track. And I remember Alex going, "We've got it," and I said, "Really?" And so I rem I remember going in listening to me. And I'm going, I'm slurring my words here, you know. I'm I'm that drunk, and he said, "No, you can't tell. It's okay." Danger, glory, oh, glory, oh, to 
so so you made that solo album which i like a lot um which i think needs to be rediscovered there's also that great cover of the dan hicks tune how'd you choose that song <laughs> that, that, this was this was weird right uh uh one i heard dan hicks and uh I loved him, you know, because it was something different. And I fell in love with the two chicks who were singing with him, you know, and, uh, and, and I heard, I heard I scare myself. And for me, it was like the first psychedelic violin solo right. I've ever heard, which is at the end, you know, even yeah. before Jean Laponte. You know, with uh, well, it, it, it was played by David Laflamme, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Which, yeah. Yeah. Went on to form yeah. the Beautiful Day, which is a yeah. psychedelic jazz rock band led by a violin. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I I heard that and it and it stuck with me, and I thought, what a great song, and uh, because I was. You know, when I was asked to do the album, I didn't know what material I was going to do, and so I thought, I'm going to try this, and so. I tried it, and uh, when Ireland put out the uh, the album, they put this out as this, that when they made singles, you know. Yeah. And then I see at the bottom line, I'm living in New York at this point. I see Dan Hicks is playing, and so I think, great, I'm going to go down because my single is being released next week. Right, right. now, Dan had a <laughs> had a drinking problem also. Sure. And um, he did that old, you know, uh, water in the glass on stage yeah. when it was actually, uh, you know, yeah. a, a stolly or something. And, you know, and so as the show's going on, he's getting a little sloppy or <laughs> whatever. And um, after the show, I remember he came off stage. This was at the bottom line. He came off stage and went went to the bar and I thought, I'm going to go up to him and give him the single, you know, and I thought right. he'd be really pleased with this, you know? Uh -huh. And so I, I tap him on the shoulder and he was like kind of unapproachable, you know, he was at the bar. He was really into serious drinking. It was like, you come yeah. near me, I'll fucking kill you, you know? And so anyway, I went up to him and I said, listen, I said, Dan, I've, uh, I've, I've, I've recorded one of your songs and I'd, I'd love to know what you think about it, if you can give it a listen when, when you have the chance. And he turned around and he looked at the, the, the single yeah. and frisbeed it over the audience. Oh, God. And so I had, I had two things that I could do. I could cry or I could just crack up laughing. And I remember cracking up laughing. I was, and I just said to him, I didn't expect that <laughs> and then walked <laughs> off and, and that was it. So I, I never got to know what he thought of it, you know, but. Uh, and uh, what did you think when Thomas Dolby also covered it two years later? It, it, it was over, you know, it, I'd, I, I, I'd actually gotten over making, uh, you know, they were talking about making another album and I wasn't really in, I was, I was, I think I was touring. The two of you would, Co both cover that within two years of each other. Yeah, I think his was a success, whereas mine didn't really uh, take off. When he was coming off. She was she blinded me with science, and you know they did put that out as a single, which I don't know why. Like that particular song for him after that hit he had, but it's a great tune, and um, 
it really turned hearing like especially his version you know got a little bit of play so i think it turned a lot of people on to dan hicks which was which was cool yeah which uh which is uh, definitely good enough because some of these sound like I see people all the time just like slogging it away in the studio spending hours in the studio trying to come up with something half as compelling as say till the doctor gets back for example I think it was a moment in time that uh, I, I, I praise Blightwell for this because it was a case of like, if it works, I, I, I'd rather go in, in, into a studio with, uh, with bad musicians that have good ideas, right. to be quite honest with you, you know, uh, than, uh, you know, uh, session guys. And I've never considered myself a session guy, even though I've, I'd been on a few albums. I, I, I've never, you know, I was never uh, uh, like, oh, get Reynolds, you know, to play on this or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 what you do on these records that you're on is something very much, I mean, with all due respect to like your great session players, there is something, there is something to these records that you guys all, especially, it's why I wanted to preface this whole segment talking about that creative thing that was happening at compass point there are there are a lot of influences i, th I think it's mainly sly and his ear for uh, you know for uh, uh caribbean music and um also in, in in reggae there's a lot of influences you know when you mm -hmm. not 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 even uh, just music you know i mean the raga thing when you think of like the amount of indians who live in uh, jamaica you know that's bound to rub off somewhere and there's a lot of chinese 
Hence the, uh, you know, the way that Mikey Chung plays. Mikey Chung plays in a very staccato. And it could be ding, 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 ding. It's not that, you know, but it, it's definitely influenced by the uh, Chinese. You know, that, that staccato guitar that Mikey would usually copy uh, Robbie's bass line. But in doing so, he, he would also, you know, instead of he'd go you know and play the same line but embellish it a little and um, because Wally was a, a special uh, keyboard player and uh, Tom Tom Club I, I, I think they use Wally as well but um, Chris and Tina bought penthouse behind the studio and then they still own it funnily enough and uh, they would pass the studio sometimes you know and I I don't know what influence you know uh, we we had on on their rhythms you know but uh, they were really interested so um, yeah there were interesting times that it, you, you can't just call a bunch of like top rate session guys, throw them in a studio and come up with something as magic as these records. You, you know what? You're dead right there because I don't know if you know the story about George Martin. Uh, what happened was, you know, the Beatles became huge in America. And so it was some, some business guy's idea, some lawyer's idea probably Alan Klein or someone like that, right. uh, who, who thought we're going to get the best musicians here and we're going to get the best producer in the world and we're going to make an album and we're going to top the Beatles. And yeah, so yeah. what they did was they got some great musicians and uh, I think uh, George Martin said... Uh, no, I, I, I really don't want to do this because I've not heard the material and everything. But I think they gave him an offer that he couldn't refuse, which I think probably opened his studio. They, made, they gave him so much money for this. And I think the name of the band was Sea Train or something like that. Sea Train? Yeah, yeah, they kind of disappeared, you know. Yeah, because... I know, I know. C Train. There was a guy that used to be, a couple of guys that used to be in the Blues Project and a couple of other guys. Well, it's a nice record. It's not the Beatles, you know. Yeah, but, but um, I remember George Martin doing an interview. He said, these guys came in, and it was like, 
well, we're here, you know, uh, we've got George Martin. Let's let's make, make a Beatles record. Let's let's meet. Yeah. And it, it was exactly like that. And George Martin was like, okay, what material do you have? And it was like, oh right, yeah. Uh, material. Let me yeah. see. And I've always found that great musicians don't necessarily make make for great writers. Yeah. There was a story I heard in the 90s where some young hotshot producer uh, approached George Martin, this was at the height of the Britpop era, and said, bloody hell, Mr. Martin, we got this studio, we got the same console, we've got the same amps, we've got the same guitars, we've got the same that the Beatles use, we've got the same this that the Beatles use, we've got the same that that the Beatles use, you know, and why can't we get that sound? And Martin goes, because you don't have John Lennon. <laughs> you don't have the same band. Right. <laughs> and that, 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 that's what makes the beauty of, you know, when I listen to, uh, I love the band. Yes. You know, uh, Leave on Helm. Yes. They yes. have three great singers and they, they sound, to me, they sound like farmers singing. Yeah, they you do. Know, you know, there's, there's an earthiness there's a loneliness to uh, that. That, that, that band actually revolutionized rock in a kind of quiet way because not just among songwriters in America, but when music from Big Pink, their first album came out in 1968, it kind of like devastated the, the London scene where yeah. all of a sudden it put an end and overnight it ended British psychedelia, like overnight. And I'm, all of a yeah. sudden, everybody wanted to do this earthy, rootsy, almost. George, George Harrison wanted to join them. Yes. You know, was, Eric Clapton wanted to join right. the band. Exactly. You know, because it, there was there was a truth there. There was, you know. It, it, it just worked. I think music works with everything. I heard this beautiful track by uh, George Harrison um, playing with uh, with some reggae musicians. And it was a live track, and it, it was gorgeous. There was no, uh, ah, you know, this is rock mixed with, it was a form of music. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like a new form of music, and it, and, and it just fitted so well. I, as I think all music, classical music, and, you know, when I hear Randy Newman's arrangements on, uh, I, I love his last album, by the way, uh, when I hear Randy Newman's uh, string arrangements, you know, I mean, these are purely like soundscapes from films and, mm -hmm. you know, which he does, you know, but, uh, and his father did and his grandfather or whatever. And it really comes through, but I love the minimalist way that Randy Newman does those soundscapes. So any, any music I believe is... Uh, can can be brought together if it's done in a tasteful way and not an obvious way. <laughs> That's interesting. This is Delphine Blue for JasonCharles.net Podcast Network. 
You've been listening to part two of Inside Barry Reynolds, a series of in-depth interviews with the legendary songwriter, guitar player, and DJ musicologist and journalist, Greg Kaz. For more information about Barry Reynolds and this series, check out the Audio Dramas channel on jasoncharles.net podcast network and listen and subscribe to the entire series wherever you get your podcasts or live and direct on jasoncharles.net. JasonCharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.